Good morning. Our reading for today comes from the book of the prophet Micah, chapter 6, beginning with the first verse. Anyone wishing to follow along in the Pew Bible can please turn to page 1060 in the Old Testament. Today is the second Sunday in our series on Micah 6, 8. We will be reading the verses leading up to our key verse. In these verse, verses, we will hear a holy court case announced. Then we will hear God be, bring a plea against the people. Lastly, we'll hear Micah respond with a dramatic question. <coughs> Excuse me. Let us listen for what the Spirit is saying to us today. Hear what the Lord says. Rise, plead your case before the mountains, and let the hills hear your voice. Hear, you mountains, the controversy of the Lord, and you enduring foundations of the earth. For the Lord has a controversy with his people, and he will contend with Israel. Oh, my people, what have I done to you? In what have I wearied you? Answer me. For I brought you up from the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of slavery. And I sent before you Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. Oh, my people, remember now what King Balak of Moab devised, what Balaam, son of Beor, answered him, and what happened from Shittim to Gilgal, that you may know the saving acts of the Lord. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with a thousand of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? May God add blessing and understanding to this reading of the word. Thanks, Bonnie. What do you do with guilt? When you feel it, when you have it, when it's part of your life, how do you carry it? How do you receive it? How do you process it? What do you do with guilt? Do you see it as a burden? And if it's a burden, what size? You know, is it pocket size? Uh, is it a, like a big load of laundry, uh, except heavier, that you carry around? Uh, does it weigh you down? What do you do with guilt? Or maybe not a burden, maybe it's just an annoyance. Maybe it's a buzzkill for your self-esteem. A challenge to self-care. Something that you need to overcome. I feel guilty and I need to do whatever I need to do to not feel guilty. To resist guilt. What do you do with guilt? For me, it has something to do with how it resonates inside, right? 
Uh, is it appropriate guilt or is it inappropriate guilt? What is my relationship with that guilt? Where does it come from? Uh, if it feels appropriate to me, if it matches up with something that I have done or said or harbored, then it's entirely possible for me to make that into quite a burden or uh, a place where I wallow around a lot, right? But if it feels like something that somebody else is trying to kind of put on me, then I am likely to get my hackles up, I will bristle, I will resist, I will reject. But then maybe a little part of me will say, eh, maybe they had a point. What do you do with guilt? What do you do when you feel guilty? There are people in our lives who know exactly where our guilt buttons are. They are usually the ones we love the most. And yet, nonetheless, we have those interactions sometimes where one of those buttons gets pushed, one of those levers gets pulled, one of those tapes gets played. I don't know. Do we have tapes in the digital age? Do we have guilt tapes? I don't know. A file gets accessed. Hmm? What do you do with guilt? Sometimes the first struggle is just to say then, uh, well, is this appropriate? Am I a guilty person? Or in the language of the church, uh, uh, am I sinful? Truth is, though, especially outside the church, but to some measure inside the church, the word sin has gotten a lot of bad press. Go figure. And so we tend to resist it a little bit. We tend to say, ah, yeah, I don't know about uh, if, whether or not I am a sinner, whether or not I am sinful, whether or not. Uh, but I think that's where the second part of this verse comes in. Because while I know a lot of people resist the idea that uh, they are sinners uh, or have sinned or are burdened by sin, uh, most people I know who are not delusional will say, oh, but I fall short. I have fallen short. Uh, that is something I have done. In the last 15 minutes, I have fallen short. Yeah, happens pretty regularly. And indeed, the word for sin just means miss the mark. Have you fallen short? Have you missed the mark? I have. Yeah, that's a little bit. And, and then especially when we put in the last part of the verse. Um, have I fallen short of what God desires? I think so. I think so. Sorting that out, figuring that out, and then what do we do about that? What do we do about the guilt that comes with falling short, with missing the mark? Last week, we started this series by looking at four prophets who lived about 700, 750 years before Jesus, and they did their share of calling out sin. And among them was Micah, whom we will spend the rest of our time considering. He begins his message by calling out sin. The Lord is coming out of his place and will tread upon the earth. The mountains will melt and the valleys will burst like wax near a fire, like waters down a cliff. All for the transgression of Jacob and the sins of the house of Israel. 
Everything is going to suffer and it's all your fault. That is an announcement of sin. That is a word that indicts, right? And last week we thought about how this message was received. Uh, generally not well. People said, a little bit more of a paraphrase this time, don't preach that. No one should preach that. Nothing bad will happen to us. That's how they reacted. That's how Micah tells us they reacted to his version of the message, how Isaiah tells us that they reacted to his version, how Amos tells us they reacted to his version of essentially the same indictment. They did not receive it well. They did not feel the guilt. Should they have? Was the indictment accurate? What should they have done with the guilt? What do we do when we feel guilt? If you happen to have a case before the Supreme Court of the United States of America, or even in one of our federal courts, or in one of the courts in England, or in some courts in France, before things begin, as the justices or the judges enter the courtroom, a marshal of the court will come out and will say, Oh, yay! Oh, yay! Oh, yay! All persons having business before the Honorable, the Supreme Court of the United States, are admonished to draw near and give their attention. The court is now sitting. It's the language that's been used in our courts since we spoke French. It's just a French version of hear ye, oye, listen up. There's a court about ready to sit and make a decision about guilt. That's how Micah begins the first, the, the sixth chapter that Bonnie read. With an announcement, with the martial uh, voice calling the mountains and the hills. Hear, you mountains, the controversy of the Lord and you enduring foundations of the earth, for the Lord has a controversy with the people. The Lord is bringing a case, not as prosecutor, mind you, but as a plaintiff in contract law. It's not a prosecutor who's gathered evidence of criminality and is bringing an indictment against a potential criminal. It is somebody who has had a, an arrangement, a relationship, uh, maybe family law, maybe contract law, and is coming as a plaintiff with a controversy. And you hear it in the next part, right? Oh, my people, what have I done to you? Answer me. Because, God says, I've kept my part. I brought you up from the land of Egypt. I freed you from the house of slavery. That's my part of the contract. I've kept it. I, I sent leaders to you, Moses and Aaron. And I love that Micah includes Miriam, right? I just think that's so cool. I wish somebody else had spelled that out a little bit more. We got lots of words from Moses, and we got some stories about Aaron. What we know about Miriam is she danced when the freedom was finally accomplished. She sang a song and she led the women in dancing 
And God sent all three of them, two brothers and a sister. I kept my part of the bargain. I freed you from your slavery. I gave you leadership so that you would know about the saving acts that I have done for you. I have kept my end of things. The implication is that Israel, that the people have not have not kept their side of the contract, their part of the bargain. God is bringing a case. On behalf of the people, then, Micah wonders. Micah speculates, then. He speaks with the voice of somebody who has been convicted, who has realized the guilt that is uh, connected to the indictment. Uh, connected to the complaint, connected to the controversy, and using the language of the system of his day, he asks, then what can I bring? How shall I bow down? How can I make up for this? What can I do to make it right? What sacrifice will fill the gap, pay the debt, restore the relationship? What can I bring to get things right again? What can I do about my guilt? What can we do about our guilt? In the system of the day, when you had violated the relationship, when you had violated the law, when you had guilt, you brought some kind of sacrifice, some kind of offering that would help restore the relationship. Micah offers a series of kind of escalating examples of things that he could bring. With what shall I come? Shall I bring uh, my burnt offerings? Right? There are all kinds of You could bring uh, some grain. You could bring some fruit. You could bring small animals. You could bring a large animal and they would be burned, maybe totally consumed as a, as a symbol of complete acknowledgement of guilt, something completely dedicated to God, more often than not, partially burnt and then eaten by the priests and maybe even by the whole community. Can I bring just this normal thing that we do all the time, bring a, a bit of grain, a, a bushel of the first fruits, the normal kind of thing that we would bring to restore this relationship. Then he goes a step up. Um, a yearling calf. A regular thing, but a significantly regular thing, right? A particularly powerful, expensive offering. Maybe something that would be given once a year by somebody of means. And then he steps it up again. Thousands of rams. Okay, not rams, but you get the point. Thousands of rams. That was still within the realm of possibility, but that would have been more the kind of sacrifice that had to do with national debt. More the kind of sacrifice that a king would bring. A thousand rams. A spectacle. A bloody spectacle. Would, would that suffice? And then we step up again into the realm of, of fantasy. Tens of thousands of rivers of oil. Right? Fantasy in their day, not in ours, mind you. Would that be enough? 
Would that be enough to satisfy? Would that be enough to restore the relationship? Would that be enough to pay the debt? To erase the guilt? Would that be enough? And then the most shocking escalation. The most overblown. Shall I bring my firstborn? The fruit of my body for the sin of my soul. Now we know one of the kings during Micah's time, King Ahaz, did sacrifice at least one of his sons, probably more. But it's hard to imagine sacrificing our children's well-being for our own, isn't it? Would that do it? Would that restore the relationship? Would that make things right if I give up the most important thing in my life, the most costly, the thing beyond cost, beyond imagination? Would that do it? Micah asks and asks and asks and asks. Would this do it? Would this take care of guilt? To our modern ears, it can sound like kind of a primitive system. You bring a bushel of grain, or some doves, or chickens, or uh, a calf, several of them, oil, a human life. It sounds to our ears primitive. And yet we have our own version of bringing offerings to make relationships right. We we make offerings as well. And I think we even recognize some of the categories of that ancient system, right? They had guilt offerings. We understand that. One of the ways we deal with guilt is we do something to make it up to the person where we've done something wrong or where that person thinks we've done something wrong. You understand there can be some tension in a relationship where one person thinks you're guilty but you don't. Still, sometimes we do things to try to take away that sense, that perception of guilt. We have our guilt offerings. We have our peace offerings. Things that we do, even if we don't really think we're guilty, things that we do to restore the relationship. We understand that. We are prone to feeling like we're indebted and that something has to be done to restore the way we want the relationship to work. Friends, family, otherwise, some kind of service, some kind of sacrifice, some kind of effort, some kind of offering. And the truth is, like the ancient people, we use some of that language when we think about worship. I know that if before worship I am feeling out of sorts, 
Chances are, just by moving through worship and completing worship, by being in fellowship with a community of faith, uh, by doing this interaction, by doing the things that are part of worship, if I have felt out of sorts before worship, I inevitably feel in sorts after worship. It restores whatever is feeling out of sorts. And I know that if I come to worship feeling pretty good, chances are, after worship, I will feel even better. By the way, whether I preach or not, okay? Not just about that. We use that language of worship. We have that sense of feeling. We gain well-being. Part of why you are here is the hope, I suspect, that you will leave feeling better if you have felt poorly, feeling even better if you came here feeling good. I suspect that's why, part of why, we come. Whether it's guilt that we bring, or whether or not we would call it that, we sometimes use that language of worship, and we certainly use that language at the table, the language of sacrifice. As Christians, we use the language that suggests that our Lord's sacrifice is the sacrifice to end all sacrifices. That is the language of one tradition in the New Testament. It's not the only language that we have for understanding Jesus' death, but it has become the major image, the primary language of the church. And so we use it to interpret our worship, the table, the meaning of Jesus' death. Truth is, Micah and Isaiah and Hosea and Amos stand in tension with that. They are skeptical of the ability of sacrifice to truly make things right. And they say so. They stand in tension with our urge, our practice even, of setting things right with sacrifice. And so Micah says, speaking to that tension, God has told you, God has told you, you know, God has told you, God has shown you what is good. You know, the cheapest way to end anything the cheapest way to end a TV show, a movie, a sermon, is to say, just wait till next week. But just wait till next week. And the next week. And the next week. 